Welcome to Freya's Fairy Tales. We believe fairy tales are both stories we enjoyed as children and something that we can achieve ourselves. Each week, we will talk to authors about their favorite fairy tales when they were kids and their adventure to holding their very own fairy tale in their hands. At the end of each episode, we will finish off with a fairy tale or short story read as close to the original author's version as possible. I am your host, Freya Victoria. I'm an audiobook narrator that loves reading fairy tales, novels, and bringing stories to life through narration. I am also fascinated by talking to authors and learning about their why and how for creating their stories. We have included all of the links for today's author and our show in the show notes. Be sure to check out our website and sign up for our newsletter for the latest on the podcast. Today is part two of two, where we are talking to Neil Romrell about his novels. After today, you will have heard about writing prompts as a kid in school, starting with short stories based on life experiences, finally being able to write a novel when COVID traps you at home, getting signed by a publisher and getting your rights back, learning how to finish getting your book ready, dumb luck helping get things done for your book, writing multiple books at once, and doing things your own way. Sight Alpha Eyes in the Dark, Book One What if I told you Sasquatches were real? What if I told you we protect them? Charlotte Chuck Barnes is an agent in the Rogers family, a secret society created to protect cryptids like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster from the outside world. Life is usually quiet at the aging site Alpha, where Chuck is stationed. But a series of deaths brings Chuck face-to-face with a dark foe from the family's past— Along with senior agent Sally DeRosa, Chuck and her team will be forced to use every ounce of their training to battle a rising threat to cryptid and human alike. But will it be enough to stop the entity behind the eyes in the dark? Site Alpha will appeal to fans of the X-Files, Men in Black, and the Mothman prophecies. It presents cryptids in new and interesting ways, creating a world that is both down to earth and out of this world. So anyway, so uh, it taught me a lot. It taught me a few things. Number one, it taught me that I probably, in the future, like, again, going through Ingram Spark, it, at the time, it cost a lot of money. It costs far less money to get with Ingram Spark now. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> now uh, it's a, I mean, if you sell thousands and thousands and thousands of copies, yeah, you're you'll, paying you'll, way more in the long run, more. but yeah. up front, yeah. not as so, much. What I've, what I've noticed, though, is that I sell way more books on Amazon and personally. Like, I sell more books myself just to people mm-hmm. than I probably do through Ingram. Right. If we're being honest about it. Well, I think that's and, most authors' experience, yeah. too. Yeah. So so in the future, uh, I don't know that I'd get such a big... I, I think with the series, the my, my base series, so, you know, my, my debut novel is Site Alpha. That base series, I probably will continue to do it kind of like I did with it, right? Like, it, it mm-hmm. it'll kind of be... A, you know, there'll be a full publishing thing. It'll have all the stuff. It's it's audiobook is being recorded right now, a year later, but still, it's okay. It's a year. Hey. I, I'm getting an audiobook, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, and uh, and so I'll have you know that series will probably have the exact same format for everything. At the same time, I'm I've I'm about seventy eight, almost eighty thousand words into a into a fantasy book that I've been kind of writing in between times when I couldn't get my brain around my my base novel stuff there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know with it. I don't know that I'll go all that. I might just release it on, you know, KDP and and put it up there and let folks see it. And because it's 
to me, it's a different story. I finally am getting back to going back to doing that D and D book that I've always dreamed I was going to eventually do. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and this is, you know, so as I read it and as I've continued to write it, it's occurred to me that this may or may not be something that people want in, you know, there's, there's such a dearth of fantasy out there. And so this is one of those things where I put it up. If it goes, if, if I happen to get some traction with it on Amazon or at my live events, then maybe I go back after the fact and say, okay, sure. I'll put it on, you know, Ingram now, or I'll do mm-hmm. something else with it. But I don't, I think at the time I, I had this sense when I released my first book, I had this sense that you have to do everything now. You mm-hmm. don't have to do everything now, no. you know? And, and so I've learned that I'm, I'm a bigger person now. So <laughs> <laughs> I I understand that there's a little bit more nuance to releasing a book than just, you know, getting everything, you know, out at the once. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't even know. I, I had somebody ask me uh, a couple weeks ago on, uh, on Twitter, well, are you going to query again? I don't know. I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I want to go through that anymore. I yeah, don't know. I'm of I, the, know. Like, I would rather make it big on my own and then have an agent contact me and not have to go through like, <laughs> the pain and the time yeah, yeah. I, and i i have all the respect in the world for for agents i i get what it is that they're doing and i absolutely understand i just i don't know that that's the place i want to be anymore is you mm-hmm. know i having been there having seen it having gone through it i can say now yes i was there once and like you said if for some reason my book were to just take off and congratulations somebody reached out to me then i would talk to him but I'm not going to, I don't know that I'm going to go out there now and just be like, here's this work that I've poured another two and a half years of my life into. I hope somebody will like it. I, I can just do that and publish it. And the same event happens, right? And I feel like too, like, so you started all this in 2020 where like self-publishing was still kind of looked down on where like now I wouldn't, I mean, obviously, obviously people who are in the trad pub may look down on self-pub a little bit more. But, like, it is so much more common now, especially post-COVID. So many authors decided to go the self-publishing route and talk about the self-publishing route and their journey and all of that, that I feel like now it's a much more, maybe it's just a TikTok much more acceptable thing. I mean, it may be Facebook still hates on (laughs) self-pub. I don't know. Yeah, no, I... I tried to avoid Facebook, so... Yeah, I don't don't even remember what the, the... the agency was here recently where they let one of their agents go. I know it was mm-hmm. a big thing on Twitter. I, I I look at traditional publishing in a different light now, having been through that whole system. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I I I talk to I talked to authors that are traditionally published. I made more in in my writing group, I made more off my book last year than two people that are traditionally published made off their books last year, mm-hmm. kind of thing in, in one of my writing groups that I'm in. And and that's not me like trying to brag. I didn't really didn't make that much money. I'm, my point is that they didn't make that much money. And that's yeah. the thing that kind of shocked me is that, you know, and so it, it, it kind of comes down to me for like, okay, I get the control if I put this book out. Now, mm-hmm. if I go through all the steps, if I do all the right things as far as getting editors, getting sensitivities, getting all the right things, then when I put that book out, I don't have to feel ashamed of that, you know? Well, and, and so like I have an author that I narrate for who's very specifically been like, do not ever sign your books with any <laughs> publisher unless it is a big five. And the only reason you would do that is because they're offering you a gigantic upfront and they're going to put a bunch of marketing dollars behind right. you. Because reality is even the big five, if you're some little tiny no-known author, they're not putting a bunch of marketing money behind you and 
you're giving up most of your royalties. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, exactly. I can retain. I can write the story that I want to. I can do it how I want to. I can format it how I want to. I can put a cover on it how I want the cover to look. And I can keep all the money. I mean, I do have to do all the work, but yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like I can do all these things exactly how I want it to be done. If I choose to just write my book and publish it and not have anyone else ever look at it, I could do that. It wouldn't be wise, but I could right. do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I had, I had a, uh, there's a, there's, uh, there's an author group I was with, I was talking to last night with the, with some of the people in it because one of the individuals there's getting ready to publish, they're publishing a book next week. And so mm -hmm. they were asking, you know, well, do I need this? And do I need that? And, and we'd kind of, we'd had a bunch of us kind of had it back and forth. And finally I said, here's the thing. I might not be the best representative of this because I'm going to tell you, just, just do what makes you happy. You know, it's, yeah. it's, I, I hate the concept of people trying to fit certain things into a box, you know, Where like everything I, applies to everybody. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Right. It's the, the thing to me is that if, if we lived in an industry where that was the, the rule of thumb, it would be a mm -hmm. stifling industry. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We, we wouldn't have so much variety. We wouldn't have such, you would a lose the creativity. Rich, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's just such a rich, you know, uh, a tapestry of books out there in the world right now that we self-publishing has made possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's all there is to it. And so, yeah, there's there's definitely some there's definitely some, you know, there's going to be some hiccups along the way. There's going to be some people that are going to say, oh, self-publishing, you know, mm -hmm. it. Darn, that's not your it, reader. It's OK. It's exactly. Exactly. That is OK. There is. I've met so many more people. I have read so many stories that I know for a fact I would never have seen otherwise were it not for people being able to self-publish in the mm -hmm. way that they can now. So it's it's <laughs> funny. You talked about like, you know, talking to giving someone else advice. So I did June is audiobook month, which is the month we are currently talking to each other in, not the month that this will air. <laughs> and so I was doing like an introduction for how I got started. And like I started off or like somewhere very early in it. I was like, let me start off with saying I don't recommend the way I started to anybody. <laughs> I saw a video within a month. I had a very cheap microphone and a closet that was like set up and ready to go. And I was auditioning for books. Did I know what I was doing? No. Did I start a podcast two weeks later? Yes, I also did that. <laughs> I'm like, I don't recommend my way. The only type of person that my insane jump into the deep end way works is people that that is the way that works for them. But I'm like, <laughs> I don't recommend it. To, so then an author that I've narrated a book for is like, well, what kind of microphone would you recommend getting started? Because I'm like, I wouldn't buy the one that I bought. It was a piece of crap. <laughs> and I'm like, if I I'm like, listen, there are tons of options. But if I had to do it over again, this is the mic I would have bought it instead. It's five times the cost of the one that I started on. But it sounds so much better that it would have been worth it. <laughs> so... I'm like, I'm very clear. I did not start the most narrators will tell you, oh, you need to start off with a coach and make sure that your coach tells you that you're ready. And like all these, which are all great things and great advice. That is not the route that I took. <laughs> and as a result, I listened back to some of my like first books that I narrated and I'm like, ooh, those are bad. <laughs> to me, I think they're bad. I mean, people still paid me to do them, but I'm right. like, yeah, I'm no. so much better now. <laughs> so how how did you how did the audiobook? I know you said it's in the works right now. How did that come about? Well, so I I I wanted 
my idea was the self-publishing. I wanted to get everything. So I, I bought the, I bought the ISBN package. It's like all, you know, like 10 of them or whatever. So, mm-hmm. you know, cause buying them one at a time is, I hate ISBN pricing, by the way. I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I'll put that out into the world right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the only reason for anybody that doesn't know this, the only reason for ISBNs is basically because you want your brand's name on your books. That is because the Amazon one the is going to be the Amazon name. The Ingram one is going to be the Ingram name. The Draft or Digital one is going to be yep. their name. Like the only reason to pay for it is like for me, I will pay for them because I have my own publishing house name already set up to go. <laughs> so yep. I will pay for them. That's the only reason to pay for them. Otherwise, just use the free one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so I had already I mean, I even I even had a I'd even pegged one of my ISBNs as being an audiobook. Um, but uh, I didn't at that time have an immediate I didn't. Again, I didn't I knew I didn't have any money, A. So mm-hmm. I was like, it's it's gonna have to wait a little while because I'm right. I'm not, you know. Um but what happened was again, I I feel so silly about some of this stuff because I kind of luck into crap and, I, and for this book <laughs> stuff. I I uh I mean I talk about the art the cover artist. I'm I'm super proud of my cover art, but my cover art cost me way less than what it should have in the open market because mm-hmm. she's a friend of my daughter's, you know what I'm right. saying? And, and it's like Again, I I got a super sweetheart deal and the rights and the whole nine yards. I can sell it on T-shirts. I can do everything I want to with that thing. And it was mm-hmm. nowhere. You know, I've 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 since paid her some additional money because I felt bad for the price that I originally. <laughs> I mean, that's not a joke. I sent some additional cash because I was like, look, I you know this you, you should have you should have earned a little bit more than what than what I I was able to give you at the time. But um, so I uh I have a a, a friend who records audiobooks. I knew she did, but mm-hmm. uh. I wasn't going to ask her and I wasn't, you know, just going to be like, Hey, and, uh, but she does a podcast and she had read my, she had read my book and she's like, well, we're going to talk about your book on the podcast, but, um, do you have somebody to do your audio book yet? And I'm like, ah, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, well, what if we set something up where, uh, we could do a, uh, you know, like maybe, you know, you just don't have to pay me up front, but maybe we just split the royalties or something. And, and I said, well, if you want to work that out. And um, and then she came back to me and she's like, well, here, how about this contract? And it was, again, way cheaper than what I would have normally had to have paid. But mm-hmm. this is somebody who wants to see the, the work succeed. That's how it ended up kind of coming together. And again, it's for me, it's dumb luck. I don't I don't I can't recommend the way that I did anything to anybody because <laughs> you're not going to have those circumstances repeat yeah. themselves ever. But uh, but that was that was kind of how it officially, you know, blossomed and. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had I've had authors that I have talked to and have royalty share contracts with now. And like before we ever they'd be like, well, I feel so bad that I can't pay you what you're worth or whatever. And I'm like, listen, there is nothing that says you can't pay me more money down the road and then I can release you from the royalty share. Because all that takes when you go through like ACX is right. me saying, hey, like I released this person from that contract and then they, you know, they may have questions, but typically <laughs> they'll release it. So I'm like, there's right. nothing that says, you know, you come into some windfall of cash and you decide to pay me, you know, what's left and what should have been owed to me. Like there's nothing that says that can't happen at some point. Right. I mean, well, like I said, I've, <laughs> I've heard of people that like narrators that do royalty share that end up making more money than their 
initial amount would have been. So it's all like I track how much I make on every single royalty share book because I want to know, like, am I making a dollar per hour? <laughs> like, how much am I making right now? I don't know. <laughs> it can it can be pretty thankless. I can in that regard, because, yeah, I uh, I was uh, I had uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine and after the book had come out, he said, well, does that mean you're going to scale back some, you know, from work? And I'm like, no, you clearly don't understand how this thing works. Cause yeah, like, no. I, <laughs> I, I just saw somewhere and I don't remember what the number was, but it was like most authors, it takes like say 10 books for them to really like start rolling. And I'm like, well, yeah. great. That's only going to take me 20 years to write that. Many. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, so yeah, what, super. What is you said you're working on the D and D book now, or are you working on the next book to the trilogy? So, well, both? okay, so <laughs> I, I mentioned I had the yeah, I kind of working on both, unfortunately. Um, and I, again, not one of those things I don't recommend doing as an author, but um, the the D and D book, what it what it actually focuses on is it's the original characters from one of the very first games I ever played, and as as I transitioned from being a player to doing uh, dungeon mastering, you know, like running the games. Mm-hmm. I I had a fondness for these this small group of characters, four of them whom were actual characters I had created, and one of whom was a buddy of mine's character. Um, and I started just putting them in every single campaign I ever made. They were there in the world, no matter <laughs> they might not be in the same place. It might be a totally different world. They, the characters might not ever run into them, but they were always in the world somewhere, yeah. right? Like they are always in the in the periphery somewhere. These five characters. And so this is kind of their origin story as now being re-envisioned by me, you know, 30 years later. And uh, and so that's it's it's for sure going to have to be two books because I can't fit the characters, the, the the stories that I want into just one book. I know that already. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned it got it up to 80,000 words. It's still got, you know, 20, 30,000 words minimum to go. So I don't have any. I don't have any illusions of it being an easy book to publish. It's going to take mm-hmm. a while because it takes me so long to get the editing process down. Um, and I had, I have, I've changed my second book in my, in my cryptid series. This is the third time I've written. <laughs> I've tried to write that book. Oh, no. I, got, I got about 20,000 words in to the first version of it and scrapped it. Cause it, to, to going back to the point of like having to change so much stuff through revisions and stuff, I realized mm-hmm. that POV was not going to work. And the, the character that it was focused on couldn't do that. So then I started it over and I thought, okay, well, I'll do this other thing. And and then I made, uh, then I kind of had just one day, I'd, I'd gotten it up to about 12,000 words. And one day I was taking a walk and I just, it hit me that this, again, something was wrong with that book. And I went home that night or I got home that night after, after taking that walk and I was reading the book and it kind of struck me like, no, this is not the direction to take this. Like, this is not, this doesn't feel authentic to the characters. It doesn't feel authentic to what I want the second book to do. Mm-hmm. So I started writing again. <laughs> so now, <laughs> now I'm up to about 10,000 words. Uh, but now the funny thing is that now that I've got this audio book, you know, cause I'm, I'm getting chapters back and you know, it's, I'm reviewing and you know, how do you like this voice and how do you like this and that? Now I'm getting excited about that second book again because mm-hmm. I'm hearing my first book all like it's almost brand new to me, right? Yeah. And so now I uh, I say I'm at about ten thousand words. I I was at 
you know, just a, just under a week ago, I think I was I was at like six. I'm cranking out words on that book now. And I'm afraid at this point, I'm like I, and my little ADHD brain is going to just get fixated on. I know one of these books is going to have to take over. And so it's probably going to be that one just because it's the <laughs> one that I'm so like I'm daily being bomb, you know, attacked mm-hmm. by these and not attacked, but I'm just hearing these these characters right. in my head now. And so now I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to have to finish that one for <laughs> I, I know the other one's so close. But uh, but I think I'm just going to tell this I'm going to write this second book and just get it to the to the, you know, I, I, the thing about it is I don't care about the word count. Like mm-hmm. it's same if it gets 60,000 it gets 70,000 gets 8,000 great the other one the fantasy one it's gonna take a lot of words because it's taken this many words just to get it to where it's at I know yeah. it's got 30,000 words left in it and um and I, it I don't know it, it it might seem silly but if I'm asking somebody to beta read for me sending them an 80,000 word manuscript and sending them a 100,000 word manuscript feels like worlds apart difference and I don't know why <laughs> it's only 20,000 words <laughs> But if but it's typing that extra zero suddenly makes me feel like I don't know if everybody's <laughs> gonna want to read this, you know. Um, so I've uh, I've I've I feel strongly that I'm gonna I, that I'm probably gonna actually in the end of, at the end of the day I'm probably gonna end up publishing that second uh, book in the series before I publish the fantasy book, which hurts my heart a little bit. But I think that's probably the right route to go. So <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of word count things that I feel very strongly about. One is, you know, the the supposed to have word counts or for trad pub like it is what it is i'm i feel very strongly that if you are self-publishing you write the story that you need to write and it is however many words it is and then your beta readers or your editor are gonna weed it down for you or you will weed it down for you um but then also that if you are writing a series you have your main like thing that your series is about your main conclusion that your story is going to come to your big bad guy gets defeated at the end of the third fourth fifth whatever book and then you stop because you have concluded what the entire like don't just keep writing because people are going to ask you if they like your books are going to keep asking you for more books so write you know little novellas about the side characters or whatever but like don't just drag the story on for the sake of dragging the story on that uh that 20,000 word draft of that that kind of like like the first version of that second book I actually I do have it saved because I do actually think that someday I might put it out as like a Vela thing on KDP or something Mm -hmm. because it's a good story but it's just about the wrong character like it doesn't focus on the character that the book needs to be focused on so um I don't feel bad about the story it's just that it wasn't it wasn't conducive to being the second book and so yeah yeah. Yeah. I, I literally, my most recent TikTok was literally about what you were just talking about. I was like, <laughs> I hate word counts in traditional publishing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, like I'm working on, so my book is a little bit of an outlier. So I said last week I was talking to an author and I said, I'm writing a contemporary fantasy and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Contemporary, but it's like urban fantasy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm writing a dual world Half of the book is in our world and the other half is in a fantasy world. It is a contemporary and a fantasy, fantasy. together. <laughs> so Love I'm like, it. what word count is standard for that? <laughs> like, <laughs> we're going to go with fantasy word counts because that's probably closer to what it's going to be. And those are bigger. <laughs> so, those, yeah, those are. But again, I don't plan on querying, so it's going to be however long it needs to be. <laughs> I that I I love that. I really do. I... I, 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 I talked about, sorry, I say I, I, I there a lot. Um, I talked about recently that I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. And I really do believe that when it comes to writing a book, after you write that first book, now I know all these things 
and mm-hmm. it keeps getting in my head like well i gotta do this or i gotta do that and i i sometimes just have to kick myself in the butt and say no you don't you know just yeah sit down and get that book written you can't do and anything it, without a book yeah that's that's really <laughs> what it comes down to if you don't have a manuscript you don't have you don't have any reason to worry so yeah <laughs> so what is the best piece of advice you've gotten and the worst piece of advice you've gotten <laughs> um so my probably the best piece of advice was it's kind of a tie in my mind getting an actual developmental editor over just getting like a line editor because they are two very different things in a lot of cases mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying um my my first editor that i mentioned i you know probably paid too soon they were very much like a developmental editor and not a line editor at all. And I, okay. again, I didn't really know that. I didn't know the difference between the two. But having had both a developmental and a line editor touch my book, it occurs to me that those are two different things. And you probably do need to have at least one from each side in theory. There are, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are out there that are perfectly good at both. But I, I think the developmental for me, the, the thing that changed it the most for me was she ask questions that I hadn't even asked myself yet. You know, Mm. like she would say, Hey, why did we do this? I don't know. And like my head, it made sense to me. Right. And, and, um, and so, so that versus what I get from a line editor, which is, Hey, this, you know, this, this needs to go in front of this and this needs to go in front of that. Um, but it also like it, it helps like gel the story a little bit. Like they would, you know, line editor, the line editor, at least for me, would often say things like, you know, uh, um, I see what you're trying to do here, but this is a better way to say it. Or this is, you know what I'm saying? Whereas the developmental editor would say, ooh, I think you could go here with this and make it even mm-hmm. better. Or, you know. I mean, and, the developmental um, editor looks at the story overall, where a line editor right. is looking sentence by sentence or paragraph sentence by, by sentence. paragraph. Not, yep. they don't care what your whole story is about. They're like, let's make it grammatically correct. Yes. Yes. So, so having one of each helped me a lot. Um, and sometimes and all, betas, betas can function as the developmental part of things. They very much can. They very much can. Um, the other thing is that, uh, I, I guess this, I, this is cheating because I'm saying, saying two things that are best, um, but getting your book out there, like getting your, getting people interested in the book way before you're ever going to release the book. Like I see so mm-hmm. many authors that are like, Hey, my book's coming out in two days. And it's like, Whoa, timeout kids. Like, you know, we need to, <laughs> yeah, I just posted a video about, in fact, me and my husband are both writing our first books and both of us on the same day within hours of each other, he posted his video. I didn't see it until after I'd po- posted the exact same thing. When do I start talking about my book? <laughs> so what is what is your best advice for when you should start talking about it (laughs) listen i'm on i'm on a podcast with you right now and i'm talking about a fantasy book that's not even finished that's that's how early you should start talking about it i i i I wish i was joking about that but i'm really not i as soon as if the minute you can get that sucker any kind of attention and i don't mean like i don't necessarily mean you have to have the full name and the full cover and all that stuff i mean mm-hmm. i think that is more for two or three months out at max. well five months at the max i would say if, if it's beyond five months i don't think it makes sense because people are going to have forgotten about it by the time your book actually releases but unless you're but consistently three, posting right or unless yeah. you're yeah unless you're somebody that just their 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 uh social media account takes off like a rocket and has millions of followers already or something but um 
I think I think three months out is is a good good point to actually when you start revealing covers and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want my, a lot of people said, well, ARC readers only need two or three weeks. No, I wanted to give my ARC readers plenty of time because as the aforementioned, you know, situation that I was talking about earlier, I want to get some feedback from those ARC readers if there's problems and I want to have Mm -hmm. time to change that if I, you know. Um, But uh, but if you can start talking about your book now, start telling people stuff. You know, I I actually, something I want to do is, um, I'm, I'm close enough now. I, I want to, I'm probably going to start like saying things like, you know, okay, well, I'm going to start introducing some of the characters from this fantasy book. I'm going to start mm-hmm. introducing a few of these kind of things. This book is still a long ways away. It might be next year at early. I mean, it guarantees yeah. it's going to be next year. It might yeah, be next fall like, before I see. It's like <laughs> yeah. things like my book that are set up. It's like the overall like premise of the book, which is a series. And so like, I know what like the series is about and what the inciting incident is and like things like that. And I was like, I could drop stuff right. like that now and it's not going to give away like Absolutely. the plot it, twist or anything like that. You mentioned you've got <laughs> fantasy. If you get the chance to even make like crude little maps, you know, something like yeah. that. It doesn't have to be something pretty. Um, oh God, if I'm hand drawing it, it is not <laughs> going to be yeah. pretty. <laughs> You can, you can look back a couple of TikTok videos ago because I posted one about my horrendous art skills. <laughs> I'm not an artist also. So, yeah. Um, well, one of the things and one of the things I want to do with my fantasy book, just just along these lines, I know this is kind of going uh, chasing rabbits now from the original question, but um, because it's based on D&D and because I know D&D's got a new edition that's supposed to drop next year in theory, we'll see how that all goes. But, you know, I... I do pay attention to other systems. I am going to try to create those characters like game system type character. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like give them stats, give them, you know, I'm going to try to do those. And then maybe again, put them on my website, put them in my newsletter or something like mm-hmm. that. You know what I'm saying? Where folks can start seeing, Hey, this is a character. This is, you know, this is their class. This is what their stats kind of look like. And mm-hmm. it doesn't tell you anything about the book other than, uh, you know, a little bit it's about D&D, maybe one of the, like yeah, it's D&D, any, right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So, so stuff like that, because that's something that I can do that it doesn't cost me a lot of money and it doesn't require me to have a complete something to put in front of you. It's mm-hmm. something fun. It's a little, you know, um, but yeah, but I'd say two or three months. Um, the worst advice, I, going back to your original question, sorry, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I chase rabbits all over the place. Um, probably the worst advice for me that, the worst advice for me was that people saying that, you need to uh you absolutely have to to seek out an agent for like a lot of people mm. said don't go to the indie publishing route you know what i'm saying that well don't go to the indie publishers that and again here's the thing having witnessed that a lot of not a lot but there have been indie publishers that have ran into problems and mm-hmm. whether it be because you know they ran out of money or because you know one of the owners showed their face and revealed to themselves to be a horrendous person or whatever mm-hmm. it might be Yes, I'll admit there are instances where indie publishers can, again, I was part of a bit indie publishing house that did fail. So, mm-hmm. but I would not have exchanged that experience. You know, I don't think that it somehow made me a worse author because I was part of that. Right. But I had a lot of people when I was first joining Twitter and saying, I've got this book and it's, I'm going to query and people would be like, well, only, you know, only query agents don't do, don't look at the, those don't do. And also I, I personally have, am guilty of this. I know vanity publishers and hybrid publishers and things like that are like looked at like at the far distant, you know, bad. But you know what? There's some people out there that they that's the only way they can get their book published is they're going to pay somebody a lot of money to just do it all for them. 
okay, if you got that kind of cash to throw around, do it, I guess, right. you know, it's not my route, but I, that's not, it, in my mind, it's not for me to tell you, you can't do that. Right. I, I the predatory ones just need to go away because there are predatory publishers and coaches and, be, and narrators and, coaches and, and all exactly, the things. exactly. All those people need to get shown the door, but, um, do your research, but, uh, but there is nothing, there is no, there's no reason that in this day and age, the only per- people you should ever talk to are agents. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? If, if, if you've got a book and you, my, my sister is going to have three books. Published. She already has one book published. She's going to have another book published later this year. And then another book published next year, all through independent uh, presses, you know, or indie pubs. And she's doing great with them. You know, she was a number one bestseller on Amazon in her category when, when her first book dropped. And Again, these are indie publishers. They're small presses, but she's going to be doing fine, you know. And, she, yeah. and so it's, you know, it's like we, you can't. I, I just, I don't like people. And going to to just expand on that even more, the people that talk about putting stuff in a box, you know, well, you have to write. You know, your fantasy has to be so, you know, nine hundred thousand words. Your your science fiction has to be this many words. Your don't listen to advice like that. If somebody's telling you this is the way it has to be and it's set in stone. I, other than, I mean, you have to eat and breathe. I don't think there's a lot of things like that that you need to set in stone. Well, know? like, realistically, <laughs> there have been even trad pub books that did go out of the realm of the allowable thing. If your story, if an agent, if you can get an agent, because trad pub, you have to have an agent. Yep. Like, they yep. won't they won't touch you. But if yep. you get an agent to look at your story, and legitimately, there are no parts of your story that can be cut. It has to be that many words you will probably get someone willing to pick your story up. If you severely underwrite, that might be different. If you're like writing novellas, <laughs> hoping to get trad pub, that's a little bit different. <laughs> a little bit but different. like, you know, the numbers are just there as a general guideline. If your story has to go outside of that because that's how your story has to be told, like there, there is no rule that says a romance has to be exactly 60,000 words on the dot. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you see, that's just it. You'll see a lot of people that say that kind of stuff. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And, and again, I, I don't think it's that most of them, uh, again, beyond the predatory people, a lot of people mean well. Mm-hmm. A lot of people when they get on and they might be somebody that actually did get a, you know, they got an agent and they got an agent because they wrote a 60,000 word romance. Okay, congratulations. You know, that's fantastic. Um, but again, when somebody comes on and says, well, this is how I got my things done and this is the only way you should be able to do it. That makes no sense to me. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, every every author is going to be different. Every narrator, as you put it, is going to be completely different. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's there's such again, that's part of that whole bouquet of beauty that it comes with, the you know, writing yeah. books. They're just. Yeah. So, you know, your anyway. book, your book, your audio book, your whatever your painting, your whatever it is <laughs> that you are creatively putting out there into the world is going to be someone's favorite and someone's most hated thing in the entire world. Yep. The quantity of I hate her voice that I got at the beginning versus now. Last week, I had someone actually it was earlier this week. Someone was like, oh, my God, I loved that book that you did so much. You are her voice and I will never hear anyone else's that character's voice. You oh, just, that's awesome. You never know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Put your creative thing out there and some people will love it. Some people will hate it. And just don't comment on their reviews unless they tag you in them. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you. This, like I said, I, uh, I, this is the part that I, I enjoy. Like, this is my favorite yeah. part of being like, you know, 
it's good to talk to people because it's well, just and like while cool. I had someone like, well, what is your like? She and at some point, I'm gonna have to have some author interview me about my own book. But I had there someone ask me go. like, well, what questions do you ask? And I'm like, well, I try not to be like with the interview. I try to be fun, but like it's Freya's fairy tales, so I have to ask about fairy tales. And then we kind of start at the beginning. There's a couple points I always hit. When did you start writing? How long did it take you to write your first book? What did you do after that? How do you talk about like as long as like all the major points of being an author get covered, the rest of it, I've talked about hair color on here. I've talked about um, I talked to P.S. Nail, who runs smoke shops. Um, I've cool. talked to, you know, random things about other things. We, I talked to one author for a while about terrible texas accents in narrators <laughs> like <laughs> it's the sky is the oh, limit as long funny. as we hit like the man points it might branch off a little bit but like and i can usually tell like i can tell you've done podcasts before because you stayed on topic and you knew what to talk about there weren't long pauses of you trying to think of an answer <laughs> so it's like I mean, I've been doing this for, let's see, podcast launched April of last year. So over a year now, I've been talking Very to cool. authors. So awesome. I'm like, you know, th this was not the one that I jumped into. That was, I started, so two months into narrating, I'm like, we're going to start a daily fiction podcast. Ooh. So like classic novel, audiobooks, every day, every day yeah. I release a chapter of a classic novel i would not recommend in fact i went to a podcast conference last year and they said only like four percent of podcasts are daily yeah. and we're an insane <laughs> branch of the group so <laughs> i'm like yep yep, uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> but also the at the same conference judging by the bug eyes that i got when i at the conference i hit like fifteen thousand downloads while i was there and nice. that podcast had been going, like, just under a year at that point. And I would say, like, oh, I should hit 15,000 downloads this week. And their eyes would get gigantic. Like, oh, my God, that's so many. And oh, now I'm awesome. now I'm coming up on 40,000 downloads, and it's been less than two years. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> that's cool, though. That's awesome. I'm like, this little thing where I was like, I'm just going to record on this crappy microphone in my closet has turned into I've been fully booked with narrating for two years and, or a year and a half. Podcast is doing okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, no, that's incredible. That's so incredible. No, so I, I, uh, I, I very much, I, I've for, you know, almost ever since I finished the book, I've been like, oh, it'd be cool if I could do some kind of like, you know, something. And TikTok's kind of been that thing for me just as like an outlet for me to just share crap mm -hmm. about my life. But I still, I, I very much see, having been on so many podcasts now, I'm like, oh man, I would like to do a podcast eventually. But I just don't know. Like there's so many writing ones, right? Like there's so much stuff about right. just writing. And I'm like, I don't have anything new to add to that. Like, yeah. I'm going to do something else. That's the fairy tale, the fairy tale twist. Right, no, I, I, I think yeah. you've got an absolutely fantastic format. This has been one of the most, most fun, you know, uh, podcasts I've ever got to be on because we got to talk <laughs> about some stuff that's not just you know, the, the yeah. baseline kind of things well, that everybody good, talks about. Like, so. I feel like every interview related podcast should have some kind of icebreaker question. Like, and you may ask it off whatever, but some kind of icebreaker to like loosen up <laughs> whoever you're talking to. There was literally, so I'm at this podcast conference is a week long thing. And one of the sessions I went to 
was this lady who does a business podcast. And she talked about how she sends her list of questions to her business people she's going to talk to ahead of time. And then she essentially does the interview ahead of time with them over the phone to, like, go over their answers ahead of time. And then they do the whole recorded thing. And I'm like... Wow. That sounds way too stiff and scripted. And I turned to my mom, who I made go with me because I didn't want to go by myself to to the first (laughs) podcast conference ever. So I'm like, I turned to her and I'm like, that would never work for my podcast. (laughs) Well, the only maybe as a business, I guess maybe I can see a little bit, but still, I. Yeah, I I think the opportunity, like I said, you presenting the the fairy tale angle, a it was something because I was thinking about it this whole week. I was going, man, it's really the only because I was like, well, Rumble still I feel like a lot of people have probably said that one, so maybe I'll have to do. No, was like, most no, common, <laughs> Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Little Red Riding Hood. Those are the most common wow, ones that I've had. Oh, dang, dang! Because see, my other one would, would maybe like the only other one that I remember really vividly was Hansel and Gretel. You know, mm-hmm. being kind of, a, you know, like I, as a kid, that one struck me just because of what happens in it. You know, the, yeah. the dark forest, the, the house made of, you know, candy. Yeah. And it's kind of like, um, but still Rumpelstiltskin, because I think it's just because that book was just really what settled it for me. But, but no, that was, like I said, that was, it, it had me thinking like well, before yeah. I even got to the podcast, like, oh, I want to, you know. Well, I've had so. people that, I mean, you guys schedule your time and like know the name of the podcast. And I've had people be like, oh, that's a good question. And I'm like, did you not think I was going to ask that? Like, <laughs> well, see, I went and listened to a couple of your episodes too. Okay. So I knew what okay. was going to happen. You know? I, uh, I I try to at minimum at least follow the podcast I plan to be on. Hey, I very much appreciate it, and uh, I very much appreciate getting to know more narrators because I will certainly have more books in the future. <laughs> yes, and I will uh, I will certainly uh, uh, need narrators for all those. So uh, so yeah, it's uh, anyway. Well, I just like I, I just do. like meeting people. So. <laughs> I do all genres. I mostly get fantasy and romance, but I will do anything. I did a horror <laughs> at one point that was in like a thrillery one. Okay. Um, that one took more research than anything because I'm like, how do thriller narr- narrators narrate their books? I don't know. I've never done one <laughs> or heard one. I'd never even listened to one at that point. Um, yeah, I do. I do everything. I do royalty share, too. Um, very cool yeah my my most of my calendar is royalty share so i like i like indie authors or self-pub i I tend to say indie when i really mean you know indie and self right right um but like you know that is that's my favorite i like the royalty share ones they tend to be nicer to me (laughs) i was actually um i was talking to one of my daughters about uh one of the characters voices and i forgot the i forgot the phrase i used uh but but she was like it's so funny to me that like you hear those voices in your head already kind of thing and i was Mm -hmm. like i do but it's like i i guess like in my mind that was one of that was one of the the hardest things i struggled with is i would write stuff that i was like well clearly in my mind i know what they're doing and it should be obvious right that you Mm -hmm. know or it should be obvious that they do this and and people would be like i I don't really get what they're doing here and i'm like oh that's right because it's all in my head i'm not that's what I I learned to put that out there (laughs) I will tell like narrators or authors it's like as a narrator when I'm auditioning for a book on ACX right I which is where all of my other than the podcast all of my stuff has come from (laughs) ACX so like that is my sole experience what I will tell narrators and authors is when when an 
me as a narrator am auditioning for a book, I'm not auditioning now. I audition for books that I absolutely love the audition piece, and I really, really hope that I get the book. But I'm not auditioning to be the best narrator that auditions. I'm auditioning to be the match to the voices that were in the author's head while they were writing the book. And there are a lot of cases where I'm not going to fit that voice. They wanted a deep husky voice or they wanted a super, super high pitched voice or whatever the case may be. Sometimes you are just not the voice in their head. It's right. part of the game. It's part of the yeah. game. So <laughs> you you well, do that it. Makes sense. And sometimes <laughs> you crazy stalk and join their newsletters and pray to God that they pick you. And then you see that one of your friends gets the book and you're like, man, but she's so good. But I really wanted that one. <laughs> So it's all a part of the game. But hey, if you want to send any work my way, I am happy to take it. <laughs> all right. Well, you have a good rest of your Saturday. Go enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again so much. For, and I look forward to uh, to see, seeing them pop up in the future. So thank you so much. Have a good day. <laughs> you take care. Bye. Bye. As Neil got older, he liked The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Today we'll be reading another story by him. A dryad is a tree nymph, or tree spirit in Greek mythology. Dryas signifies oak in Greek. Dryads were originally considered the nymphs of oak trees specifically, but the term has evolved towards tree nymphs in general, or human tree hybrids in fantasy. Often their life force was connected to the tree in which they resided, and they were usually found in sacred groves of the gods. They were considered to be very shy creatures, except around the goddess Artemis, who is known to be a friend to most nymphs. Today we'll be reading The Dryad by Hans Christian Andersen. Don't forget, we're reading Les Mortes d'Arthur, a story of King Arthur and of his noble knights of the round table on our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. The Dryad We are traveling to Paris to the exhibition. Now we are there. That was a journey, a flight without magic. We flew on the wings of steam over the sea and across the land. Yes, our time is the time of fairy tales. We're in the midst of Paris in a great hotel. Blooming flowers ornament the staircases and soft carpets the floors. Our room is a very cozy one. And through the open balcony door, we have a view of a great square. Spring lives down there. It has come to Paris, and arrived at the same time with us. It has come in the shape of a glorious young chestnut tree, with delicate leaves newly opened. How the tree gleams, dressed in its spring garb, before all the other trees in the place. One of these latter had been struck out of the list of living trees. It lies on the ground with roots exposed. On the place where it stood, the young chestnut tree is to be planted and to flourish, it still stands towering aloft on the heavy wagon which has brought it this morning a distance of several miles to Paris. For years it had stood there, in the protection of a mighty oak tree, under which the old venerable clergyman had often sat, with children listening to his stories. The young chestnut tree had also listened to the stories, for the dryad who lived in it was a child also, she remembered the time when the tree was so little that it only projected a short way above the grass and ferns around. These were as tall as they would ever be. But the tree grew every year, and enjoyed the air and the sunshine, and drank the dew and the rain. 
several times it was also, as it must be, well shaken by the wind and the rain, for that is a part of education. The dryad rejoiced in her life, and rejoiced in the sunshine, and the singing of the birds. But she was most rejoiced at human voices. She understood the language of men as well as she understood that of animals. Butterflies, cockchafers, dragonflies, everything that could fly came to pay a visit. They could all talk. They told of the village, of the vineyard, of the forest, of the old castle with its parks and canals and ponds. Down in the water dwelt also living beings, which in their way could fly under the water from one place to another, beings with knowledge and delineation. They said nothing at all. They were so clever. And the swallow who had dived told about the pretty little goldfish, of the thick turbot, the fat brill, and the old carp. The swallow could describe all that very well. But self is the man, she said. One ought to see these things oneself. But how was the dryad ever to see such beings? She was obliged to be satisfied with being able to look over the beautiful country and see the busy industry of men. It was glorious. But most glorious of all when the old clergyman sat under the old oak tree and talked of France, and of the great deeds of her sons and daughters, whose names will be mentioned with admiration through all time. And the dryad heard of the shepherd girl, Joan of Arc, and of Charlotte Corday. She heard about Henry IV and Napoleon I. She heard names whose echo sounds in the hearts of the people. The village children listened attentively, and the dryad no less attentively. She became a schoolchild with the rest. In the clouds that went sailing by, she saw picture by picture everything that she heard talked about. The cloudy sky was her picture book. She felt so happy in beautiful France the fruitful land of genius, with the crater of freedom. But in her heart, the sting remained that the bird, that every animal that could fly, was much better off than she. Even the fly could look about more in the world, far beyond the dryad's horizon. France was so great and so glorious, but she could only look across a little piece of it. The land stretched out, worldwide with vineyards, forests, and great cities, of all these, Paris was the most splendid and the mightiest. The birds could get there, but she never. Among the village children was a little ragged, poor girl, but a pretty one to look at. She was always laughing or singing and twining red flowers in her black hair. Don't go to Paris, the old clergyman warned her. Poor child, if you go there, it will be your ruin. But she went for all that. The dryad often thought of her, for she had the same wish and felt the same longing for the great city. The dryad's tree was bearing its first chestnut blossoms. The birds were twittering round them in the most beautiful sunshine. Then a stately carriage came rolling along that way, and in it sat a grand lady driving the spirited light-footed horses. On the back seat, a little smart groom balanced himself— the dryad knew the lady, and the old clergyman knew her also. He shook his head gravely when he saw her and said, So you went there after all, and it was your ruin, poor Mary. That one poor, thought the dryad. No, she wears a dress fit for a countess. She'd become one in the city of magic changes. Oh, if I were only there amid all the splendor and pomp, they shine up into the very clouds at night when I look up. 
I can tell in what direction the town lies. Towards that direction, the dryad looked every evening. She saw in the dark night the gleaming cloud on the horizon. In the clear moonlight nights, she missed the sailing clouds which showed her pictures of the city and pictures from history. The child grasps at the picture books. The dryad grasped at the cloud world, her thought book. A sudden cloudless sky was for her a blank leaf, and for several days she had only had such leaves before her. It was in the warm summertime. Not a breeze moved through the glowing hot days. Every leaf, every flower lay as if it were torpid, and the people seemed torpid too. Then the clouds arose and covered the region round about where the gleaming mist announced, Here lies Paris. The clouds piled themselves up like a chain of mountains, hurried on through the air, and spread themselves abroad over the whole landscape, as far as the dryad's eye could reach. Like enormous blue-black blocks of rock, the clouds lay piled over one another. Gleams of lightning shot forth from them. These also are the servants of the Lord God, the old clergyman had said. And there came a bluish, dazzling flash of light, a lighting up as if of the sun itself, which could burst blocks of rock asunder. The lightning struck and split to the roots the old venerable oak. The crown fell asunder. It seemed as if the tree were stretching forth its arms to clasp the messengers of the light. No bronze cannon can sound over the land at the birth of a royal child as the thunder sounded at the death of the old oak. The rain streamed down. A refreshing wind was blowing. The storm had gone by, and there was quite a holiday glow on all things. The old clergyman spoke a few words for honorable remembrance, and a painter made a drawing as a lasting record of the tree. Everything passes away, said the dryad, passes away like a cloud and never comes back. The old clergyman, too, did not come back. The green roof of his school was gone and his teaching chair had vanished. The children did not come. But autumn came and winter came and then spring also. In all this change of seasons, the dryad looked toward the region where at night Paris gleamed with its bright mist far on the horizon. Forth from the town rushed engine after engine, train after train, whistling and screaming at all hours in the day. In the evening, towards midnight, at daybreak and all the day through came the trains. Out of each one and into each one streamed people from the country of every king. A new wonder of the world had summoned them to Paris. In what form did this wonder exhibit itself? A splendid blossom of art and industry, said one, has unfolded itself in the Champ de Mars. A gigantic sunflower from whose petals one can learn geography and statistics, and can become as wise as a Lord Mayor and raise oneself to the level of art and poetry, and study the greatness and power of the various lands. A fairy tale flower, said another, a many colored lotus plant which spreads out its green leaves like a velvet carpet over the sand. The opening spring has brought it forth. The summer will see it in all its splendor. The autumn winds will sweep it away so that not a leaf, not a fragment of its root shall remain. In front of the military school extends in time of peace the arena of war. A field without a blade of grass. A piece of sandy steppe as if cut out of the desert of Africa. Where Fata Morgana displays her wondrous airy castles and hanging gardens. In the Champ de Masse, however, these were to be seen more splendid, more wonderful than in the East. 
for human art had converted the airy deceptive scenes into reality. The Aladdin's palace of the present has been built, it was said. Day by day, hour by hour, it unfolds more of its wonderful splendor. The endless halls shine in marble in many colors. Master Bloodless here moves his limbs of steel and iron in the great circular hall of machinery. Works of art in metal, in stone, in Gobelin's tapestry announce the vitality of mind that is stirring in every land. Halls of paintings, splendor of flowers, everything that mind and skill can create in the workshop of the artisan has been placed here for show. Even the memorials of ancient days out of old graves and turf moors have appeared at this general meeting. The overpowering great variegated whole must be divided into small portions and pressed together like a plaything if it is to be understood and described. Like a great table on Christmas Eve, the Champ de Mar carried a wonderful castle of industry and art, and around this knickknacks from all countries had been ranged. Knickknacks on a grand scale for every nation found some remembrance of home. Here stood the royal palace of Egypt. There, the caravanserai of the desert land. The Bedouin had quitted his sunny country and hastened by on his camel. Here stood the Russian stables with the fiery, glorious horses of the steep. Here stood the simple straw-thatched dwelling of the Danish peasant, with the Danbrog flag next to Gustav Vasa's wooden house from Dalarn, with its wonderful carvings, American huts, English cottages, French pavilions, kiosks, theaters, churches, all strewn around and between them the fresh green turf, the clear springing water blooming bushes, rare trees, hothouses, in which one might fancy oneself transported into the tropical forest. Whole gardens brought from Damascus and blooming under one roof. What colors, what fragrance, artificial grottoes surrounded bodies of fresh or salt water and gave a glimpse into the empire of the fishes. The visitor seemed to wander at the bottom of the sea among fishes and polypi. All this, they said. The Chant de Mar offered, and around the great richly spread table the crowd of human beings moves like a busy swarm of ants, on foot or in little carriages, for not all feet are equal to such a fatiguing journey. Hither they swarm from morning till late in the evening, steamer after steamer crowded with people glides down the Seine. The number of carriages is continually on the increase. The swarm of people on foot and on horseback grows more and more dense. Carriages and omnibuses are crowded, stuffed, and embroidered with people. All these tributary streams flow in one direction, towards the exhibition. On every entrance, the flag of France is displayed. Around the world's bazaar wave the flags of all nations. There is humming and a murmuring from the hall of the machines, from the towers, the melody of the chimes is heard, with the tones of the organs and the churches mingle the hoarse nasal songs from the cafes in the east. It is a kingdom of Babel, a wonder of the world. In very truth it was. That's what all the reports said, and who did not hear them? The dryad knew everything that it's told here of the new wonder in the city of cities. Fly away, ye birds, Fly away to sea and then come back and tell me, said the dryad. The wish became an intense desire, became the one thought of a life. Then in the quiet, silent night, while the full moon was shining, the dryad saw a spark fly out of the moon's disk and fall like a shooting star. 
and before the tree, whose leaves waved to and fro as if they were stirred by a tempest, stood a noble, mighty, and grand figure, in tones that were at once rich and strong like the trumpet of the last judgment bidding farewell to life and summoning to the great account it said, "'Thou shalt go to the city of magic,' Thou shalt take root there and enjoy the mighty rushing breezes, the air and the sunshine there. But the time of thy life shall then be shortened. The line of years that awaited thee here amid the free nature shall shrink to but a small tail. Poor dryad, it shall be thy destruction. Thy yearning and longing will increase. Thy desire will grow more stormy. The tree itself will be as a prison to thee." Thou wilt quit thy cell and give up thy nature to fly out and mingle among them. Then the years that would have belonged to thee will be contracted to half the span of the ephemeral fly, that lives but a day, one night, and thy life taper shall be blown out. The leaves of the tree will wither and be blown away to become green never again. Thus the word sounded, and the light vanished away, but not the longing of the dryad. She trembled in the wild fever of expectation. I shall go there, she cried rejoicingly. Life is beginning and swells like a cloud. Nobody knows whither it is hastening. When the gray dawn arose and the moon turned pale and the clouds were tinted red, the wished-for hour struck. The words of promise were fulfilled. People appeared with spades and poles. They dug round the roots of the tree deeper and deeper and beneath it. A wagon was brought out, drawn by many horses, and the tree was lifted up with its roots and the lumps of earth that adhered to them. Matting was placed around the roots as though the tree had its feet in a warm bag. And now the tree was lifted on the wagon and secured with chains. The journey began. The journey to Paris. There, the tree was to grow as an ornament to the city of French glory. The twigs and the leaves of the chestnut tree trembled in the first moments of its being moved, and the dryad trembled in a pleasurable feeling of expectation. Away, away, it sounded in every beat of her pulse. Away, away, sounded in words that flew trembling along. The dryad forgot to bid farewell to the regions of home. She thought not of the waving grass and of the innocent daisies, which had looked up to her as to a great lady— a young princess playing at being a shepherdess out in the open air. The chestnut tree stood upon the wagon and nodded its branches. Whether this meant farewell or forward, the dryad knew not. She dreamed only of the marvelous new things that seemed yet so familiar and that were to unfold themselves before her. No child's heart rejoicing in innocence, no heart whose blood danced with passion had set out on the journey to Paris more full of expectation than she— her farewell sounded in the words, away, away. The wheels turned. The distant approached. The present vanished. The region was changed even as the clouds change. New vineyards, forests, villages, villas appeared. Came nearer. Vanished. The chestnut tree moved forward and the dryad went with it. Steam engine after steam engine rushed past, sending up into the air vapory clouds that formed figures which told of Paris, whence they came and whither the dryad was going. Everything around knew it, and must know whither she was bound. It seemed to her as if every tree she passed stretched out its leaves towards her with the prayer, Take me with you, take me with you. 
for every tree enclosed a longing dryad. What changes during this flight? Houses seemed to be rising out of the earth more and more, thicker and thicker. The chimneys rose like flower pots ranged side by side. Or in rows, one above the other on the roofs. Great inscriptions in letters a yard long and figures in various colors covering the walls from cornice to basement came brightly out. Where does Paris begin? And when shall I be there? asked the dryad. The crowd of people grew. The tumult and the bustle increased. Carriage followed upon carriage. People on foot and people on horseback were mingled together. All around were shops on shops, music and song, crying and talking. The dryad in her tree was now in the midst of Paris. The great heavy wagon all at once stopped on a little square planted with trees. The high houses around had all of them balconies to the windows, from which the inhabitants looked down upon the young fresh chestnut tree, which was coming to be planted here as a substitute for the dead tree that lay stretched on the ground. The passers-by stood still and smiled in admiration of its pure vernal freshness. The older trees, whose buds were still closed, whispered with their waving branches, Welcome, welcome. The fountain, throwing its jet of water high up in the air to let it fall again in the wide stone basin, told the wind to sprinkle the newcomer with pearly drops, as if it wished to give him a refreshing draft to welcome him. The dryad felt how her tree was being lifted from the wagon to be placed in the spot where it was to stand. The roots were covered with earth and fresh turf was laid on top. Blooming shrubs and flowers in pots were ranged around, and thus a little garden arose in the square. The tree that had been killed by the fumes of gas, the steam of kitchens, and the bad air of the city was put upon the wagon and driven away. The passers-by looked on. Children and old men sat upon the bench and looked at the green tree. And we who are telling this story stood upon a balcony and looked down upon the green spring site that had been brought in from the fresh country air— and said what the old clergyman would have said. Poor Dryad. I am happy, I am happy, the Dryad cried rejoicing, and yet I cannot realize, cannot describe what I feel. Everything is as I fancied it, and yet as I did not fancy it. The houses stood there so lofty, so close. The sunlight shone on only one of the walls, and that one was stuck over with bills and placards before which the people stood still and this made a crowd. Carriages rushed past. Carriages rolled past. Light ones and heavy ones mingled together. Omnibuses, those overcrowded moving houses, came rattling by. Horsemen galloped among them. Even carts and wagons asserted their rights. The dryad asked herself if these high-grown houses, which stood so close around her, would not remove and take other shapes— like the clouds in the sky, and draw aside so that she might cast a glance into Paris and over it. Notre Dame must show itself. The Vendôme column and the wondrous building which had called and was still calling so many strangers to the city. But the houses did not stir from their places. It was yet day when the lamps were lit. The gas jets gleamed from the shops and shone even into the branches of the trees so that it was like sunlight in summer. The stars above made their appearance, the same to which the dryad had looked up in her home. She thought she felt a clear, pure stream of air which went forth from them. She felt herself lifted up and strengthened, 
and felt an increased power of seeing through every leaf and through every fiber of the root. Amid all the noise and the turmoil, the colors and the lights, she knew herself watched by mild eyes. From the side street sounded the merry notes of fiddles and wind instruments. Up to the dance, to the dance, to jollity and pleasure, that was their invitation. Such music it was that horses, carriages, trees, and houses would have danced if they had known how. The charm of intoxicating delight filled the bosom of the dryad. How glorious, how splendid it is, she cried rejoicingly. Now I am in Paris. The next day that dawned, the next night that fell offered the same spectacle. Similar bustle, similar life. Changing indeed, yet always the same, and thus it went on through the sequence of days. Now I know every tree, every flower on the square here. I know every house, every balcony, every shop in this narrow cut-off corner where I am denied the sight of this great, mighty city. Where are the arches of triumph, the boulevards, the wondrous building of the world? I see nothing of all this. As if shut up in a cage, I stand among the high houses, which I now know by heart with their inscriptions, signs, and placards. All the painted confectionery that is no longer to my taste. Where are all the things of which I heard, for which I longed, and for whose sake I wanted to come hither? What have I seized, found, won? I feel the same longing I felt before. I feel that there is a life I should wish to grasp and to experience. I must go out into the ranks of living men and mingle among them. I must fly about like a bird. I must see and feel and become human altogether. I must enjoy the one half day instead of vegetating for years in everyday sameness and weariness, in which I become ill and at last sink and disappear like the dew on the meadows. I will gleam like the cloud, gleam in the sunshine of life, look out over the hole like the cloud and pass away like it. No one knoweth whither. Thus sighed the dryad, and she prayed. Take from me the years that were destined for me, and give me half of the life of the ephemeral fly. Deliver me from my prison. Give me human life, human happiness, only a short span, only the one night, if it cannot be otherwise, and then punish me for my wish to live, my longing for life. Strike me out of thy list, let my shell, the fresh young tree, wither or be hewn down, and burnt to ashes and scattered to all the winds." A rustling went through the leaves of the tree. There was a trembling in each of the leaves. It seemed as if fire streamed through it. A gust of wind shook its green crown, and from the midst of that crown a female figure came forth. In the same moment she was sitting beneath the brightly illuminated leafy branches, young and beautiful to behold, like poor Mary to whom the clergyman had said, "'The great city will be thy destruction.' The dryad sat at the foot of the tree." at her house door which she had locked, and whose key had thrown away. So young, so fair. The stars saw her and blinked at her. The gas lamp saw her and gleamed and beckoned to her. How delicate she was, and yet how blooming. A child, and yet a grown maiden. Her dress was fine as silk, green as the freshly opened leaves on the crown of the tree. In her nut-brown hair clung a half-opened chestnut blossom. She looked like the goddess of spring. For one short minute, she sat motionless. Then she sprang up, and light as a gazelle, she hurried away. She ran and sprang like the reflection from the mirror that carried by the sunshine is cast now here, now there. 
Could anyone have followed her with his eyes? He would have seen how marvelously her dress and her form changed, according to the nature of the house or the place whose light happened to shine upon her. She reached the boulevards. Here, a sea of light streamed forth from the gas flames of the lamps, the shops, and the cafes. Here stood in a row young and slender trees, each of which concealed its dryad and gave shade from the artificial sunlight. The whole vast pavement was one great festive hall, where covered tables stood laden with refreshments of all kinds, from champagne and chartreuse down to coffee and beer. Here was an exhibition of flowers, statues, books, and colored stuffs. From the crowd close by the lofty houses, she looked forth over the terrific streams beyond the rows of trees. Yonder heaved a stream of rolling carriages, cabriolets, coaches, omnibuses, cabs, and among them riding gentlemen and marching troops. To cross to the opposite shore was an undertaking fraught with danger to life and limb. Now lanterns shed their radiance abroad. Now the gas had the upper hand, suddenly a rocket rises. Whence? Whither? Here are sounds of soft Italian melodies. Yonder, Spanish songs are sung, accompanied by the rattle of the castanets. But strongest of all, and predominating over the rest, the street organ tunes of the moment. The exciting can-can music which Orpheus never knew, and which was never heard by the Belle Helene. Even the barrow was tempted to hop upon one of its wheels. The dryad danced, floated, flew, changing her color every moment, like a hummingbird in the sunshine. Each house with a world belonging to it gave her its own reflections. As the glowing lotus flower torn from its stem is carried away by the stream, so the dryad drifted along. Whenever she paused, she was another being, so that none was able to follow her, to recognize her, or to look more closely at her. Like cloud pictures, all things flew by her. She looked into a thousand faces, but not one was familiar to her. She saw not a single form from home. Two bright eyes had remained in her memory. She thought of Mary. Poor Mary, the ragged, merry child who wore the red flowers in her black hair. Mary was now here in the world city, rich and magnificent as in that day when she drove past the house of the old clergyman and past the tree of the dryad, the old oak. Here she was certainly living in the deafening tumult. Perhaps she had just stepped out of one of the gorgeous carriages in waiting. Handsome equipages with coachmen in gold braid and footmen in silken hose drove up. The people who alighted from them were all richly dressed ladies. They went through the opened gate and ascended the broad staircase that led to a building resting on marble pillars. Was this building, perhaps the wonder of the world? There, Mary would certainly be found. Sancta Maria resounded from the interior. Incense floated through the lofty painted and gilded aisles where a solemn twilight reigned. It was the Church of the Madeline clad in black garments of the most costly stuffs. Fashioned according to the latest mode, the rich feminine world of Paris glided across the shining pavement. The crests of the proprietors were engraved on silver shields on the velvet-bound prayer books and embroidered in the corners of perfumed handkerchiefs bordered with Brussels lace. A few of the ladies were kneeling in silent prayer before the altars. Others resorted to the confessionals. Anxiety and fear took possession of the dryad, she felt as if she had entered a place where she had no right to be. Here was the abode of silence, the hall of secrets. Everything was said in whispers. Every word was a mystery. 
The dryad saw herself enveloped in lace and silk like the woman of wealth and of high birth around her. Had perhaps every one of them a longing in her breast like the dryad? A deep, painful sigh was heard. Did it escape from some confessional in a distant corner? Or from the bosom of the dryad? She drew the veil closer around her. She breathed incense and not the fresh air. Here was not the abiding place of her longing. Away, away, a hastening without rest. The ephemeral fly knows not repose for her existence's flight. She was out again among the gas candelabra by a magnificent fountain. All its streaming waters are not able to wash out the innocent blood that was spilt here. Such were the words spoken. Strangers stood around carrying on a lively conversation such as no one would have dared to carry on in the gorgeous hall of secrets whence the dryad came. A heavy stone slab was turned and then lifted. She did not understand why. She saw an opening that led into the depths below. The stranger stepped down, leaving the starlit air and the cheerful life of the upper world behind them. I am afraid, said one of the women who stood around to her husband. I cannot venture to go down, nor do I care for the wonders down yonder. You had better stay here with me. Indeed, and travel home, said the man, and quit Paris without having seen the most wonderful thing of all, the real wonder of the present period, created by the power and resolution of one man. I will not go down for all that, was the reply. The wonder of the present time, it had been called. The dryad had heard and had understood it. The goal of her ardent longing had thus been reached, and here was the entrance to it. Down into the depths below Paris? She had not thought of such a thing, but now she heard it said and saw the strangers descending and went after them. The staircase was of cast iron, spiral, broad, and easy. Below there burned a lamp, and further down, another. They stood in a labyrinth of endless halls and arched passages, all communicating with each other. All the streets and lanes of Paris were to be seen here again as in a dim reflection. The names were painted up and every house above had its number down here also, and struck its roots under the macadamized quays of a broad canal, in which the muddy water flowed onward. Over it the fresh streaming water was carried on arches, and quite at the top hung the tangled net of gas pipes and telegraph wires. In the distance lamps gleamed like a reflection from the world city above. Every now and then a dull rumbling was heard. This came from the heavy wagons rolling over the entrance bridges, Whither had the dryad come? You have no doubt heard of the catacombs. Now they are vanishing points in that new underground world, that wonder of the present day, the sewers of Paris. The dryad was there and not in the world's exhibition in the Comte de Mars. She heard exclamations of wonder and admiration. From here go forth health and life for thousands upon thousands up yonder. Our time is a time of progress with its manifold blessings. Such was the opinion and the speech of men, but not of those creatures who had been born here, and who built and dwelt here, of the rats, namely, who were squeaking to one another in the clefts of a crumbling wall, quite plainly and in a way that Dryad understood well. A big old father rat with his tail bitten off was relieving his feelings in loud squeaks, and his family gave their tribute of concurrence to every word he said— I'm disgusted with this man-mewing, he cried, with these outbursts of ignorance, a fine magnificence, truly, all made up of gas and petroleum. I can't eat such stuff as that, 
Everything here is so fine and bright now that one's ashamed of oneself without exactly knowing why. Oh, if we only lived in the days of tallow candles and it does not lie so very far behind us. Now is a romantic time, as one may say. What are you talking of there? asked the dryad. I've never seen you before. What is it you're talking about? Of the glorious days that are gone, said the rat. Of the happy time of our great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers. Then it was a great thing to get down here. That was a rat's nest quite different from Paris. Mother Plague used to live here then. She killed people, but never rats. Robbers and smugglers could breathe freely here. Here was the meeting place of the most interesting personages, whom one now only gets to see in the theaters where they act melodrama up above. The time of romance is gone, even in our rat's nest, and here also fresh air and petroleum have broken in. Thus squeaked the rat. He squeaked in honor of the old time when Mother Plague was still alive. A carriage stopped. A kind of open omnibus drawn by swift horses. The company mounted and drove away along the Boulevard de Sebastopol. That is to say, the underground boulevard, over which the well-known crowded street of that name extended. The carriage disappeared in the twilight. The dryad disappeared, lifted to the cheerful freshness above. Here and not below in the vaulted passages filled with heavy air. The wonder work must be found which she was to seek in her short lifetime. It must gleam brighter than all the gas flames, stronger than the moon that was just gliding past. Yes, certainly she saw it yonder in the distance. It gleamed before her and twinkled and glittered like the evening star in the sky. She saw a glittering portal open that led to a little garden where all was brightness and dance music. Colored lamps surrounded little lakes in which were water plants of colored metal, from whose flower jets of water spurted up. Beautiful weeping willows, real products of spring, hung their fresh branches over these lakes with a fresh green transparent, and yet screening veil. In the bushes burst an open fire, throwing a red twilight over the quiet huts of branches, into which the sounds of music penetrated, an ear-tickling, intoxicating music that sent the blood coursing through the veins. Beautiful girls in festive attire with pleasant smiles on their lips, and the light spirit of youth in their hearts. Marys with roses in their hair but without carriage and postillion, flitted to and fro in the wild dance. Where were the heads? Where were the feet? As if stung by tarantulas, they sprang, laughed, rejoiced, as if in their ecstasies they were going to embrace all the world. The dryad felt herself torn with them into the whirl of the dance. Round her delicate foot clung the silken boot, chestnut brown in color, like the ribbon that floated from her hair down upon her bare shoulders. The green silk dress waved in large folds, but did not entirely hide the pretty foot and ankle. Had she come to the enchanted garden of Armida? What was the name of the place? The name glittered in gas jets over the entrance. It was Mobile. The soaring upwards of rockets, the splashing of fountains, and the popping of champagne corks accompanied the wild bacchantic dance. Over the hole glided the moon through the air clean but with a somewhat crooked face. A wild joviality seemed to rush through the dryad, as though she were intoxicated with opium. Her eyes spoke, her lips spoke, but the sound of violins and the flutes drowned the sound of her voice. Her partner whispered words to her which she did not understand, nor do we understand them. He stretched out his arms to draw her to him, but he embraced only the empty air. The dryad had been carried away like a rose leaf on the wind. 
Before her, she saw a flame in the air, a flashing light high up on a tower. The beacon light shone from the goal of her longing. Shone from the red lighthouse tower of the Fata Morgana of the Comte de Mars. Thither she was carried by the wind. She circled round to the tower. The workmen thought it was a butterfly that had come too early, and that now sank down dying. The moon shone bright. Gas lamps spread light around, through the halls, over the all-world's buildings scattered about, over the rose hills and the rocks produced by human ingenuity, from which waterfalls, driven by the power of Master Bloodless, fell down. The caverns of the sea, the depths of the lakes, the kingdom of the fishes were opened here. Men walked as in the depths of the deep pond and held converse with the sea, in the diving bell of glass— the water pressed against the strong glass walls above and on every side. The polypi, eel-like living creatures, had fastened themselves to the bottom and stretched out arms fathoms long for prey. A big turbot was making himself broad in front, quietly enough, but not without casting some suspicious glances aside. A crab clambered over him, looking like a gigantic spider, while the shrimps wandered about in restless haste like the butterflies and moths of the sea. In the fresh water grew water lilies, nymphaea and reeds. The goldfishes stood up below in rank and file, all turning their heads one way that the streaming water might flow into their mouths. Fat carps stared at the glass wall with stupid eyes. They knew that they were here to be exhibited and that they had made the somewhat toilsome journey hither in tubs filled with water. And they thought with dismay of the land sickness from which they had suffered so cruelly on the railway. They had come to see the exhibition, and now contemplated it from their fresh or saltwater position. They looked attentively at the crowds of people who passed by them early and late. All the nations in the world, they thought, had made an exhibition of their inhabitants, for the edification of the souls and haddocks, pike and carp, that they might give their opinions upon the different kinds. Those are scaly animals, said a little slimy whiting. They put on different scales two or three times a day. They emit sounds which they call speaking. We don't put on scales, and we make ourselves understood in an easier way, simply by twitching the corners of our mouths and staring with our eyes. We have a great many advantages over mankind. But they have learned swimming of us, remarked a well-educated codling. You must know I come from the great sea outside. In the hot time of the year, the people yonder go into the water— First, they take off their scales and then they swim. They have learned from the frogs to kick out with their hind legs and row with their forepaws. They cannot hold out long. They want to be like us, but they cannot come up to us. Poor people. And the fishes stared. They thought that the whole swarm of people whom they had seen in the bright daylight were still moving around them. They were certain they still saw the same forms that had first caught their attention. A pretty barbel with spotted skin and an enviable round back declared that the human fry were still there. I can see a well-set-up human figure quite well, said the barbel. She was called a contumacious lady or something of that kind. She had a mouth and staring eyes like ours and a great balloon at the back of her head and something like a shut-up umbrella in front. There were a lot of dangling bits of seaweed hanging about her. She ought to take all the rubbish off and go as we do. Then she would look something like a respectable barbel, so far as it is possible for a person to look like one. What's become of that one whom they drew away with the hook? He sat on a wheelchair and had paper and pen and ink and wrote down everything, 
They called him a rider. They're going about with him still, said a hoary old maid of a carp, who carried her misfortune about with her so that she was still quite hoarse. In her youth, she had once swallowed a hook and still swam patiently about with it in her gullet. A rider, that means, as we fishes describe it, a kind of cuddle or inkfish among men. Must the fishes gossiped in their own way. But in the artificial water grotto, the laborers were busy, who were obliged to take advantage of the hours of night to get their work done by daybreak. They accompanied with blows of their hammers and with songs the parting words of the vanished dryad. So at any rate, I have seen you, you pretty gold fishes, she said. Yes, I know you. And she waved her hand to them. I have known about you a long time in my home. The swallow told me about you. How beautiful you are. How delicate and shining. I should like to kiss every one of you. You others also. I know you all, but you do not know me. The fishes stared out into the twilight. They did not understand a word of it. The dryad was there no longer. She had been a long time in the open air where the different countries, the country of Blackbread, the Codfish Coast, the kingdom of Russia Leather, and the banks of Ude Cologne, and the gardens of Rose Oil, exhaled their perfumes from the world wonder flower. When after a night at a ball we drove home half asleep and half awake, the melodies still sounded plainly in our ears, we hear them and could sing them all from memory. When the eye of the murdered man closes, the picture of what it saw last clings to it for a time like a photographic picture. So it was likewise here. The bustling life of day had not yet disappeared in the quiet night. The dryad had seen it, she knew, thus it will be repeated tomorrow. The dryad stood among the fragrant roses, and thought she knew them, and had seen them in her own home. She also saw the red pomegranate flowers, like those that little Mary had worn in her dark hair. Remembrances from the home of her childhood flashed through her thoughts. Her eyes eagerly drank in the prospect around, and feverish restlessness chased her through the wonder-filled halls. A weariness that increased continually took possession of her. She felt a longing to rest on the soft oriental carpets within, or to lean against the weeping willow without by the clear water. But for the ephemeral fly there was no rest. In a few moments the day had completed its circle— her thoughts trembled. Her limbs trembled. She sank down on the grass by the bubbling water. Now wilt ever spring living from the earth, she said mournfully. Moisten my tongue, bring me a refreshing draught. I am no living water, was the answer. I only spring upward when the machine wills it. Give me something of thy freshness, thou green grass, implored the dryad. Give me one of thy fragrant flowers. We must die if we are torn from our stalks, replied the flowers in the grass. Give me a kiss, thou fresh stream of air, only a single life kiss. Soon the sun will kiss the clouds red, answered the wind. Then thou wilt be among the dead. Blown away as all the splendor here will be blown away before the year shall have ended. Then I can play again with the light loose sand on the place here 
and whirl the dust over the land and through the air. All is dust. The dryad felt a terror like a woman who has cut asunder her pulse artery in the bath, but is filled again with the love of life even while she is bleeding to death. She raised herself, tottered forward a few steps, and sank down again at the entrance to a little church. The gate stood open. Lights were burning upon the altar, and the organ sounded. What music! Such notes the dryad had never yet heard— and yet it seemed to her as if she recognized a number of well-known voices among them. They came deep from the heart of all creation. She thought she heard the stories of the old clergymen, of great deeds and of the celebrated names and of the gifts that the creatures of God must bestow upon posterity if they would live on in the world. The tones of the organ swelled, and in their song there sounded these words, "'My wishing and thy longing have torn thee,' with thy roots from the place which God appointed for thee. That was thy destruction, thou poor dryad. The notes became soft and gentle and seemed to die away in a wail. In the sky, the clouds showered themselves with a ruddy gleam. The wind sighed. Pass away, ye dead. Now the sun is going to rise. The first ray fell on the dryad, her form was irradiated in changing colors, like the soap bubble when it's bursting and becomes a drop of water, like a tear that falls and passes away like a vapor. Poor dryad. Only a dewdrop, only a tear poured upon the earth and vanished away. Thank you for joining Freya's Fairy Tales. Be sure to come back next week for Stephen's journey to holding his own fairy tale in his hands, and to hear one of his favorite fairy tales.